Hello, and welcome back to the Total Football Analysis Podcast. I hope you're all having a lovely week so far, and we have now transitioned into the summer months, depending on where you are in the world, of course. So I hope you're all in an extra good mood this week. And if you're not, that's okay. We all have our struggles. Just remember that it's never permanent. Nonetheless, whether you're in a happy mood or not, I hope you enjoy the next 50 minutes to an hour of this podcast and get some takeaways from it as well. On the most recent TFA podcast with Lee Scott, where we chose five players who have had breakout seasons over the course of the 2022-23 campaign, I teased the next guest during the outro, and it's one that I was really excited to record. I'm very happy to announce that on this week's podcast, I was joined by one of the youngest head coaches in a top European league, a man that began his tenure in a top flight dugout at 30 and has already been in charge of two sides in the Belgian Pro League. That man is Edward Still. Edward hails from a family of tacticians, as many of you will already know and recognise the surname, of course. His brother Will is currently in charge of Stade de Rheim in Liga, while his younger brother Nicholas has worked alongside him as a video analyst at several clubs, including Saint-Troyden, Club Bruges, Charlois, and most recently Casoypen, where Edward was in charge up until a few weeks ago. Edward's story is fascinating. Having not come from a playing background, yet has managed to work his way up as a video analyst to an assistant manager and then finally to the position of head coach. Something many of us dream and aspire to do in a sport which is sometimes tarnished with nepotism and one in which clubs sometimes hold a preference for putting former players with little experience in the hot seat. Not naming names, of course. We're absolutely delighted that Edward came on and gave us his time to talk about his coaching journey and all things football tactics. I'm your host, Adam Scully. And I hope you all enjoy the following episode. Before we begin, though, please make sure to rate the podcast. Five stars, hopefully. It's genuinely appreciated so, so much. This podcast has currently been recorded at 8.36am. My dog kept me awake all night long because it's very warm and he needs to get his hair cut. So I would appreciate it massively if you could give me a nice five-star rating. That would be, that'd make my day. That'd make my week and my month. Thank you. If the podcast is to continuously grow and get better guests on, such as Edward Still, like today, we'll need your help. So it really would mean a lot if you could give us a five-star rating. And we'll do our best to bring you the very best audio content that we can. Anyway, you're here to listen to Edward, not me. So let's get into the interview. Edward, thank you so much for coming on to the TFA podcast. How are you? Cheers, Adam. I'm, I'm very well, thank you. All is uh... All is good on this side of the world. I hope to the listeners at home, you can't hear the dogs barking in the background. This is the time of the morning when they all wake up and sing in unison, almost like you know farms and and, and roosters <laughs> when they when they buck. I don't think roosters buck. Anyway. <laughs> um, I'll jump straight into the questions then, Edward. So, <laughs> I think is this the first English speaking podcast you've done? I know you did one with Sports Eleven. But it was in French, I believe. French, it is actually. Yeah, I haven't been, I haven't spoken to, to English or British media at all. So, uh, oh, really? So this is the first, uh, the first English speaking interview of any sorts that I've uh, that I've done. Yeah, yeah. I'm glad it is. So I did. I, yeah, obviously, I did a lot of research for the podcast to just. I, I always do, of course, when guests come on. I want to do a lot of research, and I tried to. I used to be able to speak French really well like <laughs> and i listened to the first few minutes and within about three minutes it was very evident that i have absolutely no idea what was happening <laughs> so i i tried to do my best of what was available in the english um 
or, or from Google Translate as well. And yeah. I think that's what I try my best. Um, to my knowledge, you don't come from a playing background, do you? Not at all. Not at all. So, like many people yeah. listening to the podcast, then, like myself included, we fell in love with the tactical side of the game, as I'm sure you did, and a lot of us wouldn't have come from a playing background either. So, I find your stories so fascinating. Was there a specific moment that made you realize that football tactics and coaching was the passion that you had? Um, yeah, there were several, really. Um, there were several. I mean, starting coaching at the age of 15 um, was was the first bit of it, I would say. Um, you know, injuries, yeah, getting injured at about that time and, and then uh, and then coaches at the local club I was playing at giving you that chance of saying, hang on, why don't you actually, instead of staying home, being injured, come and, come and help us out with the kids. And getting more enjoyment out of that than, than playing myself. Um, my brothers would tell you that was because I was pretty pretty crap playing. <laughs> but but no, loving that, loving that. And then and then every weekend being at different games, uh, we'd travel a lot with our with our dad and, and go see different first division games mm-hmm. uh, at the time. Um, that was the first step of it. And then the second step, I would say, was was at university, um, where I studied. You know, I did a, a I've got a, an undergrad degree in political sciences, and then I, I did management sciences and uh, and sustainable management in, as a master's degree. Um, so nothing to do with sport or football or, or, or nothing like that. But during that time, you know, you have a reasonable amount of, of spare time in, in your studies and different students will choose to do different things with that time. Um, and and I chose to, yeah, to watch football, basically, uh, to do more and more coaching at the time. And I'm realising that actually... It, that, it was one of the first realizations we had with Will at the time was that when we're watching football games, different people see different things, and he would see certain things during the game. Uh, I would see totally different things during the game, and that was the second point of kind of ah, this is this is cool. There were, there were so many things that you can watch and that you, you, that your eye is caught by during the game, mm. and then and then realizing actually that there was a big uh, that this is probably the third set. There's a big difference. What was happening in the UK at that time? So this is this is around about I'd say two thousand seven, two thousand and eight, um, and what was happening here in uh, in Belgium? Um, there was a big gap in terms of um, I'd say preparation. You know, the level of professionalism in the UK was much much uh, further advanced than it was mm-hmm. here, and being uh, aware of that because of you know being British and, and, and watching and, and listening to to a lot of British football. Um, we just realised that there were there were things here that were not being done. You know, nobody was talking about uh, video analysis. Nobody was talking much about opposition analysis, and um, and just starting during that time to to do so. You know, to learn uh, different IT skills of of you know things that are being done that aren't being done here in Belgium. And that's I'd say that's the third step probably of 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 realising that this is really fun. This is mm-hmm. there's so much to, to to do to talk about to watch. So was it simply true just watching games that you realised there was more to it, or was there? Yeah. Did you? Yeah, yeah watching games. Yeah. When you consume, you know, at your university it was it's consuming anywhere between ten and fifteen games a weekend, um, and once you start to consume that many games, you don't consume them as 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 a support anymore. Your eye starts to change, um, and that leads to certain things, whatever you choose to do with that, but it does lead to certain things once you once you realise that, yeah. That's really interesting because it's actually so many coaches and, and, and our managers as well that we've had on the podcast have said to me that 
the best way to learn. And it sounds it sounds mundane, or not mundane, but it sounds kind of simplistic. But the best way to learn is to simply watch football games mm. because you'll notice things and you'll notice different patterns. And when you watch maybe a team and then another side, you'll see something else or the, the kind of the same thing, the same thing happening with those you know, tactically in a game. So, yeah, I find that really interesting. And there's, you know, there's so many parts to, to what it is to be a, to be a head coach or manager mm-hmm. uh, today. Um, one of those parts is that, uh, I'd say, that analytical eye that is needed. Um, some coaches have it more than others. Uh, if you don't have it, then you need people around you and your staff who, who do have it. Um, but that is definitely, you know, if, if to develop, I think, your, your tactical eye, then, yeah, watch watch games. Because... Or- what other, the ways then can the people, the what other ways can people then develop that side? Because obviously like watching games does help, but there's there's so many other things available too. Did, did courses massively help you? Because that's kind of a grey area for a lot of people who say courses help them or hinder them. Because a lot of courses, depending on the country and of course, some are, mm. are tailored a lot towards coaching, whereas some you get a lot of, of analysis-based courses and things like that, depending on obviously what country you do your badges in. Courses do help for sure, because I think uh, courses will just help you ask different questions uh, of you and of your of what you're watching. And I think even that basic question that's usually asked in, in any decent course is, you know, what are you watching? What is your eye caught by? Um, uh, the, the, if you watch the ball in a game, you'll have a totally different feeling from the game than if you watch one individual player, if you watch the pattern of one team, or if you watch the pattern of the other team. So... Um, I'd say the the trap to be careful of maybe in, in courses or in you know reading your website for example every every morning and and, and going through it there was, there's so much to learn from that but also that's people giving you the answers mm-hmm. you know if 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 we log onto your website and we we read one of your your match reports or an analysis of a of a head coach which you've got many really interesting ones but actually by reading that we're directly consuming uh, the answer of something whereas if you've watched twenty games of that head coach. Your your own impressions and your own analysis might be somewhat different to what the course or the the, the article has been has been given. So it's it's and then you jump to those shortcuts of ah oh, yeah this is what a, a head coach is, is doing for mm-hmm. example or this is this is what a team is doing. Um, and those those shortcuts are fine you know they might be they mm-hmm. might be really really accurate and really pertinent. But that's still somebody else's shortcut. And yeah. if you've watched those twenty games, you might have a different perspective on on it. Yeah. It's really interesting. I, I tend to agree as well. And while we do obviously upload analysis articles daily, I do think it's important as well that if you read an article, if someone was to go and watch the same team, they, as you said, they may take a different impression from it. And that's okay. And that's, I mean, it, it's not that it's subjective. Of course, like some things happen in a game that aren't really subjective, but everyone mm. translates it differently. So I think, yeah, I think it's really important that people, they can read the yeah, articles and watch the, it themselves. Yeah. And that's, that's what I've loved about the, um, one of the key I mean, something that clearly I wouldn't say changed my life, but it, it had a huge impact on me at university was reading Moneyball, reading the Michael Lewis's Moneyball up there. It kind of hit me, wow, there is a different way of looking at things, of looking at sports, looking at sport events. Um, and that, it was then taking Michael Lewis's ideas and then seeing what was happening in football 15 years ago and just playing with that idea step by step as we've gone along. And then we had a great time when I was assistant to, to Ivan Neko for, for, for nearly five years. We had a great time playing with those different data points, creating uh, KPIs with them. But what I found today is that 
using that data and always starting an opposition analysis with uh, an, an, an analysis sorry, of the data is that that just gives you a purely objective, um, let's say, painting or drawing of what the opposition is mm. without any interpretation. And this is the, the, from, the, from the KPIs that we've chosen um, to evaluate an opposition team, this is what they look like. And then from there to be able to dive in and to, and to start having a, a subjective idea of what what they're doing, what they're not doing, and what their their, their strengths and weaknesses are. Um, but it's so it's so cool today, you know. There are so many tools that are available, yeah. and so many different ways of looking at it that are available. But you know, it's 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 really really rich. That's really interesting as well about the kind of the, the KPIs you mentioned. Did you or how did you create your own KPIs? What what kind of stuff would you look at? Because, of, for example. A TFA we use, Wisecout was the main source of stats. Now, mm. while we are, obviously we're a website, so we try our best just to, to use the stats from Wisecout, we wouldn't be able to we'll really create our own KPIs. But sometimes I feel anyway, depending on, obviously maybe at the top level, it's more accurate. The further you go down leagues and in more obscure countries, the data becomes a little more yeah. uh, ambiguous. Less yeah, less consistent is probably a better yeah. word to use. So, yeah. What kind of KPIs did you create then that that you felt best suited to the opposition analysis? Well, it started with us actually. It started with wanting to understand uh, the quality of our performance to take the score out of uh, out of the the picture, and then how good or how high was the quality of the performance? And then from there, that was that was the first step. And the second step is 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 asking ourselves the question: um, Who are we? Um, what is it that we want? Uh, from the team, what's our team identity? And then from those two um, starting points, well, actually, now that we we clearly know who, what our team identity is, just identify the, the data points that are going to matter to us. Um, and so we'd created, you know, it started off, I'd say, in the, in, the, in the first season, we started off with maybe seven or eight uh, KPIs. Uh, simple stuff, you know, PPDA, um, a number of crosses, um, uh, passes of um, number of passes per per possession and, mm -hmm. and basic things like that. So we had seven or eight of those, and then it just evolved and developed uh, season by season. To by the end of it, the last season we had together in, in China, we were working, yeah, for about maybe twenty five KPIs per game, um, and that would just give us this this indication of yeah the quality of, of the performance. Um, and then I took that further. Uh, my my first job as head coach. One of the choices I made was, I, you know, I want to have a, a full-time data analyst who's only focusing on that, um, and then going further with it. And, and yeah, but it's also that, that it's it's clearly again one of the differences between between working in Belgium and, and and in the UK or other countries. I know that you know Germany or, or, or yeah, Germany I'd say are, are more advanced, but Belgium is still quite a long way back. There were a couple of teams who were who were using those uh, the data that is available. Um, Club Bruges being one of them, uh, Anderlecht is doing more, more and more so, uh, Genk as well. Um, but that's only been in the last year, four years, uh, mm -hmm. whereas the UK, you know, that's been that's been going on for, for, for nearly 10. How do players react to the use of data? Because I, I obviously I speak to a plethora of other coaches as well, and they all give me different answers. But again, everyone's experience is different. Some say that players, some players, I'll say, don't react well to tactical instructions and, and the use of data because they don't want their head mm. filled with that kind of stuff. Some keep it quite simplistic, whereas others are more inclined to be interested in that kind of stuff. For example, like a, a Manchester United, Casemiro is known to use Wisecout daily. 
to analyze his own performance. So I always think it's really cool that if he doesn't rely on the the analysts of the coaches, he does it himself as well. So he has that and then his own he uses his own head because he obviously thinks differently. Everyone thinks differently to analyze his own game. Um, so how do players in your experience react to that use of data, especially when you started to use more KPIs, like you said about you went from like seven to 25? Um, well, I think I'll start actually. The, the first point is there were two questions. Is for, for me anyway, there were two questions. Is One, how to touch a player. And then secondly, how to coach a player. Um, two, the, those two questions being at the same time linked, but quite different because you want to touch a player by you know, touching the person that he is and his emotions um, and what makes him tick. And then the other one is how to coach him, uh, how to develop him. And so, yeah, two quite different questions, but how to touch the player. Some players will be touched by uh, telling them a story, uh, by asking how they are and letting them speak to you and they'll, they'll tell you, you know, how the family is or, or what they've been up to, any, any, anything. Um, some players are very rational they want the facts and those facts will touch them and you'll get to them faster because they are more rational. Um, whereas others will be touched easier by images, etc., etc. So I think it's key when you're starting to just have an understanding of who the players are. Um, and there are, there are some clubs working with personality profiles, which are really, really rich and, and super helpful for, for, for coaching staff. Because when you have the personality profile of everybody, um, staff members and players included well that just gives you more information faster about what is going to make those players tick are they social beings are they more rational etc um, etc et but then from there I think it's also that as I would even say every season that goes by players are more and more open to it because I, I think you'll find that players they want to be the best version of themselves um, the sport is a relatively individual sport. You know, mm -hmm. players want to want to improve themselves. They want to make transfers. They want to, you know, get as high up um, as they can do. Yeah. And most of them, then, or, or the high level ones, will 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 use all of the tools that are available to, to get there. I mean, the, the the leaps that have been made in terms of sports nutrition, in terms of sports psychology, in terms of uh, fitness levels, all of those things are just getting better and better. And one of those, yeah, one of those tools is the data. Um, and may that be the medical data, may that be the physical data, or the technical data. You know, it, it's, it's it's all numbers or stats just coming from a different source and, and gives a better understanding of whatever it is that we, we want to talk about. So as time goes by, I think players are more and more open to it. Um, and may that be the younger players generation who are coming through because they're used to that even yeah. from the youth. I was just going to say, they'll be coming through and they'll so be used to that, whereas you don't have older to teach players... Them anything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're, they're, they're open to it. Yeah. But even then, on the opposite side, you've got the, the older players who are kind of trying to trying to, to, to find anything to make their career longer and better. Mm -hmm. And it's, it always reminds me of that story of Ryan Giggs and you. Yeah, I was going to say Ryan Giggs, the vision. It's the yeah. same thing. Yeah. He, he picked out, damn, yoga can help me. And at 20 years ago, yoga was, you know, it's, 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 it's let's say it's a running joke in football. Today, it's totally normal, but it wasn't back then. And and so that's just that, that kind of uh, example that numbers can help certain players because, wow, actually, if I really tune into my physical numbers, my training load, uh, get, get a grip of it and understand it, this can maybe help me get, I don't know, an extra, an extra couple of percent. So it's not the be all and end all, 
but I think it is just that tool. And some people, yeah, some people um, do use it to, to, to quite a high effect. Yeah. Speaking of Ryan Giggs as well, I believe when he hit kind of his 30s and onwards, he began using the vision coach as well because he transferred into midfield. And then so he could see like an extra or an extra I can't even remember it was a very small percentage but he could see an extra bit from the side of his eye and uh, which I thought yeah. was just fascinating and even just gaining that little edge and he improved the midfield as well when he moved in because he lost space of course couldn't play in the wing anymore and it's mm. it's crazy when you think of players especially at the top level like clubs will have nutritionists and uh, etc and then players will have their own dietitians nutritionists then they'll have their own personal trainers they'll have personal coaches that they work with just out their back garden and things like that we know there's some yeah. in, in in Manchester and things like that, that work with Man City and Man United players for example but then obviously they'll go to train and do their own stuff with the Man City Man United coaches it's yeah. even it's, yeah it's bizarre like players are so yeah especially coming up players have become so so centered around gaining that extra percentage like you're yeah. right whereas like you see sometimes the older generation of players maybe not less inclined to do so but some are hesitant because they're coming towards the end of their career. Like I'm not going to name names. There's, there's examples of interviews where some are are given out because goalkeepers play up in the back now, for example, and and they don't do it and they always kick it long, even if it's to the detriment of the team, etc. Um, so yeah, it's cool. And in that same way, the goalkeepers now from a young age are being brought up playing out from the back. That that's almost become a, a an evolution of the game just from the grassroots up from from mm. such a young and age. Another example is maybe what what Liverpool have been doing with the newer sciences. Mm-hmm. How, uh, how they've been using neurosciences to with different individual players with the with the collective as a whole. It's it isn't the be all and end all, um, but if they can gain uh, a small advantage from that, if a few players can can you know pick something extra from that, then then brilliant, you know. And and yeah, the data for me is is that it's just an extra tool that we have that's available. Um, that can be pretty complex if you know you can get lost in it, and there are some there are some pretty dangerous shortcuts that, that can be made and that can be traps for for coaching staffs and head coaches. Um, but it isn't it isn't to bombard players with, with, all, with all of that information every day. Um, but I think it's one of those you know put the information out there. If players want to pick it up and consume it, great. If they want to ask questions and you can take it further, then then brilliant. But yeah. What about analysis then and transferring like? tactical analysis of video footage for example to the players how much would what would so say obviously when you're when you're in charge of the teams what would your routine be in terms of opposition analysis is it you get them all into a room you have a, a an analysis meeting or is it you send maybe individual clips to players etc i know everyone does things differently of course yeah um because they've also before that it's uh I want the players to know that um, the most important is us, and so we're going to we're going to define ourselves before anything else based on our team identity. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, if you if if you then take every um, game plan, so the the game plan for the upcoming game, we want that game plan to be on the whole eighty percent made up of our identity. You know, what are our principles, um, individual, collective, etc. And then what are the 20% are we going to add on to that 80%, which is specific to this to this upcoming game? Um, so that, that's always the, the, the indicator. And you, we need to remind ourselves of that because you can get lost in opposition analysis. Um, of, you know, you, you, you dig and you dig and you dig and you mm-hmm. dig and you have all of this information that the staff have that you discuss at length. 
But then it's always, you know, from all of this information that we've created for ourselves, how are we going to tell a story to the players that's super simple to them? Because I always, and, you know, not having been a player, but I always want the players in the tunnel beforehand to kind of be able to close their eyes and, and really simply mm-hmm. be able to answer the question in their, in their minds of, I can see how we're going to win this game. Because it, it needs to be that, then there needs to be that level of clarity for them to be able to perform at the high, highest level afterwards. Um, so we always need to remind ourselves, yeah, of those, those, those couple of markers. Um, but yeah, we, we do, I'd say there are kind of, there are three collective moments in the week where we'll uh, do the analysis. Um, the first day back is, is usually, the, the day after the game, I like it to be off. Um, and then the first day back is therefore two days after the game. Mm-hmm. So if you've played, let's say you play Saturday, Sunday's off and come back in Monday. The first thing I like to start with is the, the, the debrief of, of our game. Um, because then that that enables kind of closure, I'd say. Um, you create a discussion with the players if if you want that. Can sometimes I'd say on the whole that will be collective, they'll put it together. Um, sometimes we'll we'll split that up after training. It can be that you have, you know, you'll take the, a group of players. May that be position specific or role specific in the team. Um, but to, that can be after after the training. Um, and then from there, the, the second day, the third day of the week, to go into the individual analysis of it. Um, so to have different assistant coaches work with the different players in, individually and give mm. them the, the feedback. Um, I like there to be one day in the week where there's no images or video or analysis at all, um, just to have one day where it's, yeah, where not, uh, not, not, so that it's not too heavy because it's still yeah. a physical load. There's also an analysis load to be aware of and to, to, to take into into account. And then two days before the game to show the the, the team the analysis of the opposition. And there again, you know, that it's a really tough question to answer of how, what are we going to give to the players for this mm-hmm. to be, it needs to be clear, but it needs to be simple at the same time. Um, and to try and keep that, I'd say the opposition will be will be given either by one of the analysis, or, uh, the analysts, sorry, in the, in the staff or one of the assistant coaches, uh, depending on the, the staff makeup. Um, that will be, you know, 10 to 12 minutes. Mm-hmm. And then from there, 10 to 12 minutes to explain what the plan of the game is. Um, because I think if you can get both of them to overlap, you create more clarity and more simplicity as you, as you go along. So, you know, you're looking there at that, that meeting being 20 to 25 minutes long, really. Um, and there, the, 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 how we like to do it is that not for it to be just a, a, a one-directional meeting, where we have the information, we're going to give the group of players the information, and that's one way. So to make it as interactive as possible, because if we think that the players know who we are, they know our identity, they know our strengths and weaknesses, and they know also the profile of players in the team. Mm. And I always like to have that that discussion with everybody of, you know, our profiles are, are specific. If you have you know, a six foot four target man, if we've got a, a smaller, faster striker, well, you're going to look for different things. Um, but to have that discussion openly with the group of players. Um, and then as we go along the, the video analysis, um, or as we go along the video analysis of the opposition, to be stopping and asking the players questions. And that interaction, not only does it get the players more involved, but it also... Um, it can also raise questions from the players mm. or even bring up points that we hadn't spotted um, that can be really interesting. So just to try and create it as, I'd say, as 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 interactive but as dynamic as possible. 
um, in that moment. And then, and then the day before, you know, the next day, so the last day before the game, we'll, we'll come in with the set pieces, uh, which will have been worked on during the week of just our principles and then come and add on at the last moment, right, this is specific to this game. This is what the extra bit of information that we need. Yeah. Um, so that, that's what I'd say the week of, of, of analysis load for the players will, will look like. Analysis at professional clubs is always something that interests me because, as you said, you maybe get 10, 15 minutes, for example, for before a game to and or to show the players the opposition analysis. And yet it's probably been hours upon hours upon hours of footage collected and watched and analysed. Marcelo Bielsa talks about this, that he said, I think he said something along the lines of it gives him anxiety when he doesn't know everything. That's why he does such extensive reports. But football for me is probably the the, the, the biggest sport in the world for having them or having the most variables in a game. Mm-hmm. And that that kind of scares me. I know that's strange, but it almost uh, it almost scares me because you can prepare and prepare and prepare and then your goalkeeper takes a heavy touch and he puts it into his own net. Like that's that's mm-hmm crazy to me and you've you've watched all this all this footage and it's yeah as i said there's so many variables that you sometimes you can't even account for so i think it's i i always found the process of breaking things down and giving it to players interest and so thank you for 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 answering that what was the process then of analyzing games for you did you implement the same process from your time as a video video analyst to you know, you told your analyst when you were a head coach that this is how I, I, I prefer to do it. So that's how they did it. Which way was that? Like, was it the, you know, build up, you know, middle third, final third, then obviously and, and high, mid, low block? Or what kind of way did you analyse and break down the games? Um, similar again to how we created our, our own game model. Um, so basically on three dimensions of uh, attack, defence and transitions. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd say those are the three starting points of it. Um, and then within each of those dimensions is, yeah, breaking it down into, I think even sometimes the most simple is, is actually the, the, can be the most effective in the, ask ourselves the question, how's the, the next opposition, how are they winning games, how are they losing games? And to which ex- to what extent is, are those three dimensions key for them in that, you know, how much actually are they losing the game? Because you can analyze a team in attack. This is what they're doing to, through the through the thirds. But the trap there for us is that actually we become just becomes a description, mm-hmm. and we're not in the job of describing. We're in the job of of performing. So we need to we need to pick up in in that analysis what matters, um, and what matters is how they're winning and how they're losing games. And it can be that there are parts of their attack that are actually causing them. To lose the games for whatever reason. Um, so, so in every part, let's make the full analysis of it. Let's let's find the description. This is what they look like, and then from there, let's dive into what uh, what matters to that to that mm-hmm. team. And and yes, I mean, very much we we, we put together with Leco a, a methodology over those those five years that we worked together, where I was his assistant and and. and main analysis person always in, in the ta- in the in the staff. But it was really cool there because we had, for example, one of the the second season we had in Club Bruges together. Um I got we got the other brother. So we've the, the, there's Will and then and then Nicholas as well. The youngest it? brother is, is Nicholas. He joined the staff as as uh, main video analyst. Uh, so that gave me the possibility of of giving him 
you know, some tasks that, that become too much for me. But every time you take on a new person like that in the staff, the just the model shifts and the model evolves. Um, and it was the same thing then becoming head coach afterwards. Mm. He was uh, the main analyst, but in the in the first job in Charleroi that we had, there was another, there was a second video analyst and there was the data analyst. So, so it was in the start, you know, this is, let's work along this um, methodology. But as time goes by, different people will take that methodology into different places and, and it will evolve naturally. Um, so, so as long as you have the, the, the openness of communication, but also the flexibility of saying, well, you know, this is just, this is what worked for me and for us previously. But let's, you know, I think it needs to be dynamic and it needs to, uh, and it needs to evolve. But we need to keep always the same references. And one of those references is what really matters in this, because you can, you can spend, you can spend days and days and days talking and describing and, and going through it. But we, one of the, I think it's one of the challenges of the job is that, it goes really quickly. You know, you mm-hmm. play Saturday, your next game, if you haven't got European football, your next game could be again Friday and you've mm-hmm. got this, this, there's so little time to be, to be preparing. So yeah, it needs to be really efficient and, and to the point. That's why, yeah, I think, I, I believe clubs such as at the, at the highest level, like a Man City, Man United, they've, they have games analysed well in advance. Mm-hmm. So if they, yeah. they'll, they'll have an opponent in two, three weeks that's analysed. And I always think that's really interesting. Obviously, you know, because of their budget, they'll be able to have more analysts that it's possible to do that where it's a little trickier with, with, with a smaller budget. Um, I'd like to ask you about, because your, your story is really fascinating going from video analyst and then obviously assistant and, and then you be, became a head coach. What was the transition like? Because you, you said that obviously you weren't a player yourself, so you would have learned a lot of things under, under even Lecco as well that would have helped you in your in your head coaching journey. What was the transition like between those those different roles going literally from video analysis and in a matter of years you were head coach in in Belgium's top flight um I'd say relatively fluid I was I was so lucky to meet uh to meet Leco and, and he gave me huge responsibility from pretty much the start and every season and every every club transfer that we made because we went from STVV in the, in the Belgium top flight to Club Bruges mm-hmm. uh, then to Antwerp together then to, to Shanghai Port FC um, so every every club change we made, also the the responsibilities kind of just evolved. Um, so by the end of it, by the time we got to China, which was challenging in many ways, but actually the, by then I was, you know, very much assistant coach, leading training sessions with him, and 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 that was the end of the cycle. But the beginning of the cycle, um, I was so lucky that he would come in on a on a you know, I don't know, it's a Tuesday morning. We got game on Saturday, and he. I was a little bit shocked and shaken at the time, you know, being 25 straight out of university. And he just come in and say, right, what's the game plan for the next game? And it's like, oh, Jesus. Um, well, yeah, um, I, just, I don't know, coach. I mean, what, you know, what, what we say? and he'd look at me and say, well, what do you mean you don't know? I mean, you know, we've got a game in four days. So if, if you haven't got the game plan, who's got the game plan here? And of course, I mean, he'd, he'd all got it all clear in his head, but I think he, 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 he never saw it as a one-man show of, you know, this is a head coach and he'll do everything. So so that was a huge challenge. But after a few months, it was, you know, I, I took that that on and thought, brilliant, you know, we can, this is, I mean, how lucky am I to be able to put forward and a suggestion for what the next game plan can be and, and what this opposition strengths and weaknesses are. And that, that just gets you thinking and it challenges you and it, and it makes you grow pretty fast because if you can't answer, then, you know, you're not, you're not going to last very long either. Mm. How did... 
your relationship work in terms of your ideas on how the game should be played? Because the best example I use in this podcast is Eric Ten Hag and Mitchell van der Gag at the minute at Man United. And they, Eric Ten Hag was always very in possession oriented and that was his main focus. Mm-hmm. Mitchell van der Gag was known a lot for his defensive, you know, tactical acumen, I should say, in the defensive phase. So it kind of blended nicely. You had Ten Hag would focus on in possession, Van der Gag would focus on out of possession. That was maybe particularly the case at Ajax, I believe, what's from some reports anyway. So how did your relationship work in terms of the way you, you saw the game? Was it quite similar or did you have differing opinions on? Mm. I'm sure you had different opinions on, on certain things, mm. but was it largely different or? Yeah, it, um, different it was. I mean, Lekka was, was very much attack focused. Um, and possession focused you know how to how to use the ball first of all to to, to be good ourselves mm-hmm. you know how can we create danger but then also how, how, how to how to hurt the opposition and i was always giving him that balance you know boss we need to keep clean sheet here <laughs> and all of the attacking principles are really cool but it would be it would it, this will help us if we if we were able to keep clean sheet <laughs> um so he was always uh, complaining at me for, for, for being too defense-minded um but we were, yeah, I mean, we, we, we had that possibility of, it changes from club to club. Um, so there are, there are some, some coaches will be very ideological mm-hmm. and have their principles and, and, you know, no matter what, we're going to stick to this. Um, but on the other side, one of the things that, that, we, that we just found out with, with, with Ivan was that you can't do exactly the same thing and get results in STBV who are one of the smallest budgets in the league with really young players and then going to Club Bruges where in Club Bruges you can't do exactly the same thing in the competition as in the Champions mm-hmm. League and then same thing with Antwerp you know we can't do exactly the same in the, in the competition as in the Europa League so that, that that challenge is always okay so how to adapt to this how to be flexible enough in, our, in all of our principles Um but yeah, while I was assistant, I was I was focusing more on the defensive aspect. And then when you become head coach, I think you need to have, um, I think you need to have a balance between all of it, um, because if you don't, then you, then you're exposing yourselves to some things. Mm-hmm. But the, but it's also then to have the the exchanges and the, the the discussions with the staff members and how to choose your staff members based on what your attributes are and what your reflexes are. Um, and it was funny actually because then becoming head coach, um, I realised that I became more focused on the on the attacking principles myself, um, which was quite strange. It took me a few months to realise in the beginning it's uh, at Charleroi, um, but it is very much because I think I, actually I've, I've come to come to realise today that I think it's more positive and constructive for a team that when you go in start with your attacking principles. Let's first create our attacking identity and then our transition identity and then from there, the defensive uh, identity. Mm. For several reasons. I think, first of all, because it's, it's more fun. Yeah. <laughs> and, 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 and just that, yeah, just that. It's more fun for everybody. It's more fun for the coaches, more fun for the players. And so let's, let's just create that positive energy mm. and, and a positive exchange between everybody uh, because attacking is that. Attacking is stepping forwards um, and then from there, how to create a transition identity? Because if you go from attack to defense directly, I just think you've forgotten the link. It's 
you know, how to get from one side to the other side if you haven't got a bridge or you haven't got a path to get there. And so your transition identity, whatever that is, there are so many, so many things uh, that are part of that. Um, but then you get to your to your defensive identity, and I think it's on the defense actually where the where it's maybe needed to adapt to the profile of players that you have, um, because different profiles are going to be able to do different things, um, and 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 therefore, before even getting to that. Um, I would define myself as, as first of all, a, a principle-based coach. You know, I have very clear principles, uh, a dozen or so in attack, a dozen or so in transitions, a dozen or so in defense. And then the systems or whatever you want to talk about in terms of mm. positioning, there are some, yeah, there are a few points that are non-negotiable. Um, but actually, whether you want to play a, a 4 2 4, uh, 3 5 2, uh, 3 4 3, whatever it is, but actually, that's just that's, that's the fine tuning of it. That's the very last part of it, depending on how the players have taken to, the, to your principles. Pep Guardiola, I'm giving you really formations. long-winded answers. Here no, I love them. I'm absolutely answers. not. Keep going. I'm, I'm fascinated by your answers. Uh, Pep Guardiola calls formations telephone numbers or he has done in the past which is why i was quite interested in what you said there at the end because they don't we, we we always say this on on tfa we've actually done a whole podcast on it before but we talked about formations and their relevancy in the modern game i feel like they have some relevancy as like a reference point has always been my belief but they lost a lot, a lot of the relevancy because it's principle based it's not it's just a formation you can play a 4-3-3 and you can play two different ways you can play like a for instance, a Jose Mourinho team or a Jurgen Klopp team or a Pep Guardiola team. It's very different within that 4 3 You know, so formations as Pep Guardiola says are just telephone numbers. It's more important what you actually do within that that defines your team, I suppose, yeah. is, is more important. Um, yeah. And I think there were some there were there were questions that you can ask as you as you build it. Um how many players do you want over the ball and under the ball in let's say your first phase of build up your in the first 25 metres of the pitch, how many players in that moment do you want close to the ball and, and then over the ball? Once you get to the middle, to, to, the, to the halfway line, again, how many players do you want over and, and under the ball? Um, you know, if if you want five, well, let's say five and half, five and five, and it's really it's really interesting because you can always use that reference of the middle line and analyse mm-hmm. team based just on the middle line. How many players are over the middle line? How many players are under the middle line? Um, but just by starting with that, if you want a five and five split, or if you want a four and six split, or if you want, if you're really nuts and you want a three and seven split, um, but then each of those possibilities will give you four or five different system mm-hmm. possibilities. Um, but yeah, it's it's and it's changed. You know, twenty years ago, I, I mean, we all, I think, all of us of of our age have remembered in, let's say, from ninety eight to twenty ten, probably. The England team, the eternal debate of, you know, why are they only playing four four two? And yeah. back then, I think it was the the it was very much a system game because the systems were quite rigid. Um, the 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 impact or the importance of principles were were less high. And I've, I mean, I think we've all asked ourselves the question of what would have been of that amazing England team if if they had have played. I mean, I I, I always argue that I'd have loved to have seen them play three five two. Some would have liked to, you know, a four-three-three or whatever. But back then, it was very much system-heavy. Mm-hmm. And today, it's, it's, it's. I just get nightmares of Paul Scholes in the left wing. That always <laughs> bothers me. I, I always say you could have put, you could have even played Harrigan Scholes together, and then maybe put Gerard <laughs> or Lampard. But anyway, look, 
Time's gone, but yeah, Skull's left wing is criminal. Absolutely criminal. Um, I'm aware we're coming up to time, so I just want to ask one or two more questions. I'm sorry, I'm really bad at timekeeping. But you obviously have you you've 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 worked in a number of different countries and you speak more than one language. How, how, do, you, do you speak French, you speak English, obviously. Uh, and Dutch, yeah, I was gonna say Dutch, that's incredible. Genuinely incredible. I, I can I I can barely speak English. Um so it's amazing, yeah, that's amazing. So you, you you've worked in different countries, you speak three different languages. What was the crossover like? What did you learn the most from working in different cultures? I've always been interested in that. Like when you went to, to China, or you, you worked in the UAE as well, I believe. I, I didn't go to the UAE. Didn't I, go. Uh, I took no, I took a season out of uh, when oh. Lekko went to the UAE at the end of our Bouge adventure. I took a I took a season out. Uh, okay. Just needed a break, actually. <laughs> Total exhaustion from two seasons in, in Kabul, but um, took a break. We did a bit of TV work during that time as well, which was really really rich. Um, no, I think the different cultures, because even in Belgium, where we've got the, 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 the strange situation in Belgium where the country's split not just in half, but in three parts. There's the south is French speaking, the north is Dutch speaking, um, and to the east, there's a German speaking part where I've just spent six months um, enjoying a relegation fight there with, with Open. Um, and working in Charleroi, which is in the French park, and working in, in Antwerp, for example, is, is culturally very different. I mean, Antwerp is just on the Dutch border. Mm. Uh, Charleroi is in the south of Belgium and is, is, is relatively close to France, and it's two totally different cultures. But even, I'd say, the easiest example is, is going to China, spending... I was only there for six months. Leco stayed on for two, two years. But being there in China, number one was really cool, you know, working with quality of players we had... The, the the chance to have Arnautovic in the team. We had Oscar in the team. Aaron Moy was there in the team. So it was it was really Oscar cool still there as well. Oscar still there. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, so that was that was that was a great experience working with those players. But, but then the challenge of working with with the Chinese players who don't speak English, mm-hmm. you know, nothing. And so we had many conversations as we were going out there of how to manage it. Do we do all of the coaching members, for example, do we all take one interpreter so that we can speak to the players? But then you have the risk of, let's say, your six staff members, you have six interpreters, but all of those interpreters are all interpreting what you're saying a little bit differently. Yeah. So the message you get across the players is can be you know, quite different. And so in the end, we made the choice, no, we're going to go with one interpreter. So the whole staff, we have one interpreter. So he's always using the same, the same vocabulary, the same, the same intonation, the same energy. Um, but it, you know, it was pretty obvious quickly that actually he's going to interpret for for the head coach, and me as assistant. Well, I've got to do my job, but I can't speak. Mm-hmm. So you spend six months there coaching players, and you can't talk, and it it's I mean, it questions everything. You question the methodology, you question um, uh, coaching principles, you question all of it. How to get the message across, and you cannot talk to the players. Um, that must be incredibly frustrating. And it, it's it's. I, incredibly frustrating, but it's one of those. You know, if I'm going to get frustrated about this, I'm going to, yeah, you, you're going to, you're going to lose yeah. your mind pretty quickly. So it's actually no, embrace it, embrace it. This is this is just a really, really unique challenge, and it does it. it you know, it, it makes me realise anyway. You might have heard I've got a tendency to to go on and on a little bit. So it's actually no, no, just you know, less is more. Don't don't speak. Just just get it simple. Get the players feeling it, and 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 yeah, yeah go about it differently, really. And they would have different. They would have different ways of of phrasing things too, and like different like vocabulary in football. So, for example, like mm. I, the, the example I always use is in Italy, they they call breaking the lines when 
the central defender steps out out of position to like close down a man, so man mark in the press, for example. So say he steps forward, if the, the number nine drops deep and he follows him, that's breaking the lines. Whereas obviously in in English voc- vocabulary, breaking the lines would be that kind of split pass through a defense, for example. I always mm. find that bizarre. Yeah. So you need to kind of adapt yeah. to that. What was that adaptation like? Was it was it sometimes lost in translation? Trial and error. Trial and error. Totally trial and error. Because you, you you know you're coaching, you coach something, and then you just see if the players are picking up. And sometimes when you've said white and they do black and it's like they've done the total opposite, you think, ah, something is, there's a problem on the line here. We've got, we've got issues. But even that, you know, going, going back to Antwerp um, and working there with players who'd, who'd, who'd been in England, I mean, we, there was Rich Delight who was there in, in, in Antwerp and, uh, you know, who had a, 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 a long career in, in England. Mm-hmm. Um, and speaking with him and some of the vocabulary words we were using, he wasn't familiar with because, you know, those words weren't used in, in 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 the UK, and so it's it makes you realise how diverse a dressing room is, and how you need to try and connect to to the different people, and and I say people are not players because the people are all understanding something different to what you're saying. You know, say to a player challenge, and if you say challenge in England, you say challenge in France, you say it in Belgium, the three players or three people will understand something different from it. Yeah. So. So, yeah, um, that helps um, being from a multicultural background. Um, that helps speaking three languages, definitely, and being able to speak to, you know, players in Belgium, especially. I can speak to, to all of the players in their mother tongue. Mm-hmm. Um, but it also, you know, the, the, the diversity of your staff is really important. You need people in your staff who are, if you have everybody in your staff is exactly the same cultural profile as you, I think you reduce your chance of being able to touch everybody. But at the same time, you want your staff to be consistent enough to be putting across the same message. Mm. So it's, it's, it's so, so interesting. And, and, and so, I mean, it's, it's one of the many parts of being a head coach that are, that are, that are fascinating. That, yeah, from the outside, you, people might not always realise it. And, and I know we're on, you know, we're on a tactics um, podcast and, and, and all of the work that you guys do tactically is, is, is I love it I mean it's one of the things that Thank gives you. me the biggest kick in it but it's it's a tiny part of it and if we're not able to communicate effectively with players the tactics mm-hmm. become irrelevant uh, totally unimportant but on the same on, on the same side if if the head coach isn't capable of managing and managing I mean people managing the whole system that's there and that can be in a small club you're managing 50 people we were given the example about European clubs. You know, think of, of what Guardiola or Klopp or, or those guys were doing on, on, on that level. They're managing 80 people with 15 to 20 analysts. And it's so, so big. And the, but the, 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 the management that is needed there to keep everybody looking in the same direction, working together where the workflows are perfect, where communication is perfect, mm-hmm. where the exchange of information is, is spot on because their margin for error, for error is nothing. Um, and so all of those facets of, of being a head coach are, I mean, yeah, will make it so so exciting and so so rich, so exhausting at the at the time. I mean, it's it's always cool, you know. Look at the watch match of the day last night and see the faces of the head coaches giving their post match interviews, and then see how how fresh and how good looking they are when on the, on yeah. the first match of the day of the season. But it is, it's 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 all consuming because literally one thing can go wrong. You can. You sign the wrong player and maybe he doesn't fit in with the 
the people in the dressing room where you can sign maybe in this, or get an assistant coach who maybe doesn't click with everyone. I just that one thing you've decided to do in a summer transfer window, for example, and it would just set a ripple, a really bad stone across your Perfect. season. And I find that bizarre. And yeah, I mean, you're right. I, I almost feel sorry for some managers. And I'm, again, I'm not going to name names, but one, for example, was always David Moyes. He aged 10 years during his time at Old Trafford. I felt so sorry for him. Like he looked so fresh faced and excited when he came and then he left and he was, he, 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 he didn't look great. Bless him. Um, Edward, I'm aware I, I've kept you over time here and I'm so sorry, but the last question I'll ask you is, you know, you're, you're not with, with, am I pronouncing it right? Cast Oipen or Cast? Oipen? I was in, I was in Oipen. Yeah. Yeah. Oipen. Oipen. Yeah. So, so you were with them now and you're obviously taking a sabbatical or, or, or for however long, of course, what what what's next for you? How do you how are you gonna are you gonna use time to update your your coaching etc. and do courses? Yeah, and yeah. Um, so I got I got um, I got fired from Charleroi in October, mm-hmm. um, which is a whole podcast by itself. Um, <laughs> but so so left there and actually didn't feel I felt so much energy and and may that be positive or negative energy, but I didn't. I didn't want that time out at the moment, mm. at that moment. And it was, it was that, you know, pre-World Cup time, which I think did a lot of strange things to, to coaches across Europe. Um, and the day after I got fired from there, I, I, there were three phone calls from, from, from clubs in Belgium. And, and one of them was from, from Open, you know, we on a, we need to keep the team up. Will you take the team and, and keep us up? Which, you know, was, was an unbelievable challenge. And, and we mm. were, we were successful with him in the end. Um, but then, come the end of the season, you know, wasn't aligned with how the club wanted to take, wanted to go forwards, and and the good thing there actually is working there for six months. It was a bit like a long interview process, really. You get a, to, to to evaluate and understand how the club works, and and you know they get to understand for real who, who you are as a mm-hmm. coach, and you know lots of great things about the club, but I just didn't feel aligned with it, and and so now the next step for me is actually. Um, Finding people more than anything else um, who are uh, process driven and value driven, and and first find that connection with people, and then see how that fits with uh, with the club, um, and having yeah, not feeling in a rush now. Um, it's been three years actually since since I've had a personal break. So so, so it's the perspective of having a break, having having time out to. to so one, yeah, evaluate what's been done over the past two years of being a head coach. Um, two, push my game model on just from a tactical perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, and then even, you know, if, if if I don't have a club now before before pre-season starts, um, to have the chance over the summer to, to, to visit different coaches, to visit different places, to, to, to open your mind again to, to, to those things. Um, and to, yeah, keep pushing forward to, or keep the methodology evolving um, is is something I'm really looking forward to, and and then at some point, yeah, you know, the, the meeting those those people, and and then and then going forwards with uh, with the new club somewhere. So uh, so it's, it's funny actually being being on the one hand really looking forward to 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 that break if if that's what comes, and really looking forward to to just those those conversations and exchanges with people about about their processes and how they see running running a club. Well, I wish you all the best in that journey, and I'm really looking forward to seeing what your future beholds. Uh, thank you so much, Edward, for coming on. I, I I was fascinated by by this chat, and I I learned so so much, and I I know for a fact the listeners did as well. And and thank you for for being so open and honest as well.
No, cheers. It's it's always a pleasure. You know, it's always a it's always a pleasure. And uh, keep up the great work that you and your team are, are doing on your side. Thank you very much to all the listeners at home. I hope you enjoyed as well, and make sure to tune in on Tuesday for another episode of the TFA Scouted podcast for you all to hopefully enjoy. You're going to have to listen to my voice again for another episode. Also, make sure to rate the podcast too and share it with your followers, friends and family as it really helps us to grow. Thank you all for listening and goodbye for now.